Kim Hamer is an HR leader and speaker who lives in Los Angeles. Her husband passed away after a long battle with cancer and after his death, she was amazed by the helpful ways people around her showed support. Kim started calling their kind actions acts of love. When Kim returned to work, she noticed how little guidance leaders received when navigating cancer, health crisis or death on their team. She knew their lack of knowledge negatively affected morale, employee engagement and productivity. She set out to change that. If you haven't dealt with an employee or friend with cancer, it's only a matter of time. Kim knows firsthand how vital support from co-workers, organizations and friends is when it comes to an illness. This episode, you will learn the one phrase that seems helpful but is not when someone is going through a health crisis and how you can help through acts of love. So the story I like to tell is I was sitting in a doctor's office with my husband and the doctor wasn't talking to us. The doctor was looking at the results on the screen, on his computer screen, and he had a bunch of printouts. It was kind of thumbing through the printouts and was taking notes. And finally, the doctor looks up and says, okay, here's how I want to treat this cancer. And he starts talking about a chemo regimen of every other week and coming in and getting fluids in between and all this other stuff. And he's talking to my husband. And then he says, um, and you're not going to be able to work. This is a really intense regimen. You're not going to be able to work. And the treatment's going to take about six to seven months. And then he went on, continued talking. But I stopped listening because at that point, we didn't have three to four months of savings in our account. We had three young children. We had a toddler who was just just out of toddler dome at four. Um, you know, I was working, but my salary wasn't going to be able to cover the expenses of our house. And so I was just in a massive panic. You know, my husband was diagnosed with stage four with a stage four cancer, which means it's spread all it's spread on his body. It's no longer contained in one area. It's very serious. And um, I didn't know what we were gonna do. And then a couple of days later, I heard him on the phone with his boss and something in his voice made me like stop what I was doing, get up off the couch and walk into the study. And he, um, he, he, as, as I walked in, he had hung up the phone with his boss and I said, what did, what did Tom say? And he didn't say anything. And that just like made my stomach fall out. Like, you know, what, like what, what worse could happen? You don't have a job to go back to. I don't know. And he said, Tom just said, that they will cover my salary for the time that I'm going through treatment. And we both just stood there. And so that sort of was the beginning of a really incredible and horrible journey. My husband, um, you know, when, when he was diagnosed, we found that so many people knew exactly what to say and what to do and how to be helpful, but many more didn't know what to say or what to do. So we kind of go through this cancer. We get this cancer-free diagnosis seven, seven and a half months later. And then we're trying to rebuild our lives. And I know that a lot of people think when, you, when you're free of cancer, there's this great celebration and I'm going to live life large and all this other stuff. But there were many nights that we spent in bed looking at each other and going, oh my God, what just happened? Like we just spent seven months, you just fought for your life. And literally the cancer within a couple of weeks tried to, was like in his lungs and was trying to kill him. Like he just fought for his life. We completely switched roles. I became, he was a co-parent. I wouldn't say we switched roles, but we were very much co-parents together. So all of a sudden I was the only parent in the household because the chemo was wiping him out. You know, all these people were showing up from, thank God we had communities from all over the country in the U.S. People were coming and showing up on our doorstep and it was amazing, but we were like, what just happened? And so we're still dealing with side effects of the chemo months into it, my husband eases back into work. Our lives go back together. Our marriage remains intact, which is not always the case. And we're kind of rolling along. My husband does his very first triathlon, which is something I have been doing for a couple of years. And then three months, four months after he did his first triathlon, the cancer came back. And four months after that, he died. Oh my gosh. I I didn't even know he died. I'm so sorry. (laughs) I I, can't. <laughs> oh gosh, you, you shot that so subtly, but yes, yeah, sorry, carry yes, on. Yes, yes, no, and and it is. I mean, that's really the way it felt, even though it was cancer. It just felt really sudden. It was like this isn't supposed to happen, and you're supposed to fight it again. And 
Um, and so what we know, what I noticed again, especially after the second time and after he died was again, people knew exactly what to do. And many people didn't know what to do or what to say. And so I'm now a, an only parent and I'm raising these three kids. The kids were 12, nine and seven when he died and things were really complicated and really hard. But Every single time someone showed up on our doorstep to do something, right? Every single time said, here's a lasagna. Or they said, we're picking the kids up after school and you're not getting them back until 9 a.m. tomorrow morning. Or we're going to come over and we're going to fix that darn light in the kid's bedroom for you. Or we're going to take care of your car. We're going to fill it with gas. Or here's a, here, here's a massage gift certificate. Every single time someone did that, it felt like it was an act of love, right? It was a here's an act of love, the lasagna, here's an act of love, we're taking the kids, here's an act of love, here's a massage gift card. So I sat down a couple, a couple years after my husband died and decided to write a book, and it's called 100 Acts of Love. And it does have 100 different ways that you can show up for your friend or family or coworker who's dealing with cancer or loss or anything. And, and the reason I wrote it is because there's a ton of books out there. If you have cancer, you've got too much reading material almost, right? I mean, there's a ton of support groups, there's books. I mean, and I don't want to say that they answer all the problems, but there's a lot of information out there if you're the one with cancer. But, you know, the stats say that one in two of us, if it's men, or one in three of us, if it's women, are going to get cancer. What are the other two going to do and how are they going to help support? Mm. And there was at the time, there was nothing out there for people who you know, we're trying to figure out how to support a friend or a colleague. So that's why I wrote the book. And then I went back to work because I hadn't been working this time. My very first job in HR, which is my first love, I was in HR prior to having children or prior to having a, uh, the, my second child. Um, my very first job in HR was working for a man who's president of the company whose wife had cancer and his wife died. And I thought that what my husband's company did for him, this company would do for this guy because they were incredible. They showed up and they supported and they, you know, they did the, the salary thing. I mean, they were so incredibly helpful, but that wasn't the case. You know, I remember, I remember someone said, we should bring over a platter of cold cuts. And I was like, no, don't bring food. Like it's, first of all, it was just this man and his son. Mm. And I'm like, everyone else is going to be bringing food. The last thing that food's going to go bad or it's going to end up in someone else's refrigerator. Yeah. Right. And then I noticed that they, you know, he would come back to work and he'd be kind of cranky because you are not yourself when you're grieving and he would kind of lose his temper more quickly. And I would say, you know, I would think that they would know, like I was sort of waiting for someone to come in and tell people and no one showed up. So I started doing it. And that was the beginning of my working with managers and HR teams in showing them not just what to say when their employee is dealing with cancer, but how to manage the team and how to manage the employee and the best ways to help everyone succeed and show compassion, but also be highly productive. So that's how I got started. Yeah. And, and prior to this, you kind of just was like, yeah, all these people showed up and helped me. But it's one of those things where all those people showed up to help you for a reason. And I want to kind of ask you, I'm not sure if you've thought of this, but what was the reason why these people felt like, hey, Kim's going through a tough time. Her husband's, you know, sick. We should go help her. Because a lot of people don't actually have that network around them. Mm. That's a really good question. Um I think my husband and I were very, we were very opposite. So I was the gregarious one and he was the quiet one, but he was also, he was, he was very funny and solid. Like people like to be around him. He had the ability and, you know, he would, he would talk to the president of Universal Studios. That's the school that he was at, right? He, the parent. And then he would also talk to the garbage man and everybody said, God, I just really like him. He's just, he was so good at making you feel heard. And so I think part of the reason people helped was because they liked us. But I think honestly, most of the reason people help is because we want to help people. Yeah. Right. I mean, we just have this drive to help people. That's why we donate, you know, when we see hurricanes or, or, you know, shootings or whatever it is in the United States, we're, you know, give me the text number. I will send $10. We want to help. And at the base of that helping 
is we like to feel needed and we want to make someone happy because making someone happy makes us feel happy. So I think, so I think, I think, yes, my husband and I happen to be, he happened to be someone that people really like to be around and that made people want to help. But in the core of it, we all want to help. We want to be supportive to somebody else. I also think the other reason people helped is sometimes it was payback right? They knew that they made a mistake from last time or other people helped them and they want now want to go out and make sure that they pay it forward. So really, I think there's three main reasons that people help. And I think that's, you know, that those are them. Mm. You said when you went into the workplace, you know, again, the same kind of pattern presented itself where you're the person you're working for at the time, their partner had cancer and and they died. But people did, obviously the people that knew what to do, great. You know, those people are always around, but the people that don't know what to do, I would say those people are more the majority because me personally, yes. I wouldn't know what to do. I'd, I'd ask you, oh, do you want some help? And then the person, you know, if they're anything like me, they might go, oh no, I'm fine. When realistically, you know, they, <laughs> they might need someone to come do their laundry or like you said, take the kids away for an evening and bring them back. Exactly. So how, how do you go about educating these people on how best to help, you know, without actually knowing the situation they're in, you know, in detail? So at work, I have something called, I have a process called the North Star process, right? The North Star kind of the guiding light. So it's called the North Star process. And it it can be applied to anyone, anywhere. And there are five steps to it. One is say something. Two is deal with the feel. Three is assess the situation, assess yourself, assess the situation. Four is take thoughtful actions. And five is rinse and repeat. So let's talk about number one, because look, the the reason I wrote the book, I laugh sometimes because I really wrote it for myself mm. because I said all the wrong things before my husband got sick. I said them a lot of times. I still cringe when I think about, I had a high school friend die of cancer and I still cringe when I think about what I said to his parents. Like it just, it just tears my heart out. I'm like, oh my God, that was so horrible. So knowing what to say is really important. And normally I ask people to kind of deal with their feelings beforehand, but usually we don't have that kind of time, right? It's not like someone someone says, hey, I have cancer. And you go, hold on for a second. Let me deal with my feelings and then let me come back to you, right? Mm-hmm. So know what to say. So here's my tip for everybody here. First of all, I want you all to take that stick because you're going to hear this phrase and you're going to go, oh God, I've said that. Take that stick. Hit yourself with it once and then throw it out because you didn't know any better. After this podcast, you will now know better and you will, that phrase will try to slip out of your mouth, but you will stop yourself. The phrase is, don't say, if you need anything, let me know. And here's why. It sounds really helpful, but it's not. First of all, one of the first things you want to do when someone you care about, it's a, whether it's a colleague or whether it's, you know, your sister, Uh, when they tell you they have cancer or going through a hard time, you want to sit in the yuck with them for just a minute. You want to take a moment to just go, holy hell. Like, what? I can't believe it. This doesn't seem right. I mean, I've heard people say, have you, are you sure? Right. Which you don't want to say, but you want to sit and just feel with them. And I think that's where we get lost. Oftentimes we don't want to feel that it's too sad. We want to run away from that feeling, but oh man, if you can sit with them for just even five seconds, you have done your duty. Like they will feel that with you and they will feel connected with you. And that provides the opening for them to be able to actually accept any help that you're going to offer. So sit with them in that you feel the feel, like just feel those feelings, feel that yuck. You want to acknowledge it. The second, and when you do, and when you say, if you need anything, let me know, you're not really doing it. Even when the tone of your voice is warm and welcoming, you're not really acknowledging it. You're, you've gone immediately into action and action is important, but just not quite yet. The second reason it's not helpful is Sam, what is anything? Mm, Yeah. Right? Exactly. I mean, we can, can we share what happened to you? Of course. Yeah. So you broke your foot and I've had Sam, if you need anything, let me know. Exactly. And you're like, first of all, you're uh, far away from me. So yeah. there's probably nothing you can do. But you're like, what's anything? Like, I needed pasta last night for dinner, 
but, you know, that, you know, so anything is too big. Do you need me to carry your stuff for you someplace? Do you need me to help set up your podcast in a different room near your bed because you can't get out of bed? Like, what is anything? Yeah. And I think that we forget that that's just too big a word. The third reason it's not helpful is now you're putting the pressure. So Sam, poor guy, you broke your foot. You're kind of out of it. You're kind of pissed. You're annoyed. And now I'm putting the pressure on you to figure out, to like break apart your day and to figure out one, one little thing where I can help. Yeah. Right. And so you're already, you're like, you're already on pain meds. And so, you know, you're like, I don't know. I don't know. It's too hard. I mean, I can't tell you. I can, the only reason I can tell you what I had for breakfast is because I haven't had breakfast yet. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't so, had anything. That's my breakfast. Exactly. Exactly. But if you would ask me what I had for breakfast, I would have been like, um, um, or you asked me what I had for dinner last night. Yeah. It takes some thought. And so asking someone to break down their day to try to figure out that one piece. And then the fourth reason it's not helpful is I don't know about you, but I love doing this when I, when I experiment. How many people, when I give this talk, how many people are really good at offering help? And like 99% of the people raise their arm like me. I'm really good. I love to help. I love offering to help. And then I say, keep your hand up if you're really good at accepting help or asking for help. And 98.5% of those people put their arm down. Because asking for help and accepting help is something that we in most, and you know, your country, my country, that we just don't, we're not taught to do. Mm. It's shameful. It's, it's being on the dole. It's, you know, getting a handout. It's, it's, you know, in America, we're like raw or we pull ourselves up by the bootstrap. We don't need anybody. That, that attitude pervades when we have illness. And so it's really hard. So you've got these four reasons of why it, that phrase is not a good phrase. So now that you know, now there are five other, there are four other phrases that I tell people never to say to anyone and I tell them what to say instead. So if any of your listeners are interested in that, they can go to 100xoflove.com backslash what not to say. And that's the number 100. I love it because there's four other things that it's just, we say them all the time and they are so not helpful. Okay. So what is helpful, you ask? Sam, I'm so glad you asked. Um, <laughs> the, 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 the most helpful, one of the most helpful phrases you can say if you're going to feel the feelings, right, is just, I'm so sorry this happened. And yeah. I know it feels inadequate, but just acknowledging that they're going through this thing is a really great way to support somebody. Um, a great phrase when it's really tragic is, I don't know what to say, right? That's really powerful because it talks about what's happening in their lives has like leaves you breathless and it hurts you too. And so acknowledging it that way is a great thing. And then lastly, when you, once you've acknowledged the feelings, then you can go into action. And I always tell people, be specific of what you want to offer. And that may take, you maybe can't think of anything off the top of your head, but you can say, look, I really want to help you. Let me sit back and figure out where I can be supportive and I'll get back to you. And when you do that, you are taking the pressure off of them to, to, for them telling you where you can help. You're letting them know that you're going to come back and you've kind of opened the door for them to allow the help to come in. Mm-hmm. Um, and when it comes to helping, you know, we all have our helping superpowers. Every one of us is really good at doing something. And that thing, maybe you're good at washing dishes and it may seem weird to go, Hey, I'm really good at washing dishes. Happy to come over every night for the next two weeks and wash your dishes. Yeah. Right. But it's such a specific thing. And then if you offer it more than once, your friend may see the dishes in the dishwasher, in the loading up in the sink and be like, you know, what? I'm going to call her because she said she'd do it and I'm desperate and she's going to feel sheepish calling. She's going to be like, I'm really sorry to bother you and I don't. And, but I really, can you come by tonight by any chance and wash the dishes? And your response is going to be, yes, I can. And you get over there and you wash the dishes and everyone is feeling good. Your friend is feeling good because her dishes are washed and she got to ask for something that kind of, that you opened the door and made it easy for her to ask for something and you were able to take care of it. And then you've, um, and then you feel really good because you've done it. Right. So that's that, that being specific about what your, what your, what your helping superpower is, is a really great thing to offer to them. 
And how can you kind of be aware of what your helping superpower is, you know, because everybody would like to think, oh, I'll help anybody with anything, you know, jack of all trades, master of none and all that kind of, you know, half cut off phrases type thing. But yeah. how would you be able to know what what your best offering is to somebody? Uh, that's, a, that's a really good question. I've never been asked that before. That's a really good question. So I think it's just kind of going through your daily, going through your day and what do you really like to do? You know, some people really enjoy grocery shopping. They enjoy wandering around the store, figuring out things. Some people enjoy meal planning. Some people enjoy getting bills paid. They just feel a sense of like accomplishment. Some people love doing laundry because everything smells good and it's clean, right? Some people love animals and so they can take animals. Some people love taking care of other people's cars, right? Some people mm. just love getting the car washed and it just feels really good. Yeah. So just right there, there's a, you know, if you think about your life, there are things that I don't like to do. I don't like to pay bills. And I don't particularly like grocery shopping, but I love finding a bargain. Right. <laughs> and so, and I love, I love finding that thing that no one else can find. Mm -hmm. So if there's something that you need at the grocery store that seldom shows up, I will talk to the store manager. I will find out when that truck is showing up and I will be there first thing in the morning to make sure I get that one item for you. Like I love <laughs> that kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. So, so, you know, figuring that out, you know, some people love, love to just kind of straighten up right? They just love making piles of stuff. So having clean surfaces. Um, some people love cleaning. I had a woman, my friend of mine who loved doing laundry. Yeah. And so she offered to do laundry for us. And at first I felt like, I really don't want you cleaning my underwear. Yeah. But then I was like, you know what? Clean my underwear, my husband's underwear, my kid's underwear, go for it. Yeah. Right. So I think that's how you figure out what you're really good at. And let's take that to work. So at work, there are things, maybe, maybe someone else is in charge of the agenda and you just love doing agendas. That's how you can offer to help. You know, maybe there's a project that you're running that you, that you know that there's a piece of it that you want to take on because you, you, you enjoyed it. You didn't want to give it up in the first place, but you, now you can take it on. So you can offer to help with that. Um, you know, maybe there's clients that, you know, you really love the hunt for the sale. So maybe you'll offer to, to take, you know, to be, to be more, to be more hands-on on sales. And of course there's, you got to talk about, you know, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Sales. When you make sales, you make profits, you make uh, commissions, you know, you got to right. talk about commissions yeah. and stuff, but yeah. there's all sorts of ways that you can help at work too. If you think about what do you really enjoy about your job and what do you not enjoy? Because don't go offering something that, that you don't enjoy because it's going to make it painful for you. And that's how you can also build certain, something we call, um, um, compassion fatigue which is where you're giving so much and you're usually giving in an area where you don't want to give and that just exhausts you and then you don't want to give at all. Yeah. And taking it, well, keeping it in the workplace, when you had that new boss, that, that person that was the president and they said, oh, right, let's send them a tray of cold cuts. And you're like, oh God, no. What was your actual advice? Because I'm assuming this is a team of people. So, you know, like five, 10 people that are there that all want to help in some way, you know, you know, send a, oh, let's send an envelope around and put, you know, $5 in a piece and yep. we'll buy the cold cuts, all that kind of stuff. What, what was your actual kind of plan of attack or what was your best kind of advice to give them so that they actually helped as opposed to just felt like they helped? Bring breakfast. Send over breakfast foods. You know, um, I think we always think dinner. When someone's in tragedy, we think lasagna because it can be frozen and reheated and all this other stuff. But I cannot tell you how many times I ran out of milk and I didn't realize I was out of milk until right. I went to get the milk out of the refrigerator, mm -hmm. right? Or cereal or um, I would, you know, so that was, that was my thing. Like, hey, look, if everyone wants to do food, then why don't we find out what, what Phil and his son want to eat for breakfast and then we can yeah. bring over breakfast foods for them you know, or we can bring lunch, right? But they don't need another dinner. They definitely do not need another dinner. And, and what is it about breakfast you think that kind of helps people? Is it that they're starting their day off on a, a positive note as in like, oh gosh, thanks Sally, you, you helped me get, you know, my day started off right, that type of thing. Yeah, I just think it's, people just don't think breakfast. Like they just think, you know, when they think tragedy, they think soup. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Sustenance. <laughs> Sustenance, exactly. And they don't think fresh strawberries. Yeah. And, you know, and I think it's, it's just kind of this quick, it's just sort of one of those cultural things that we're taught to think, well, you know, it's a casserole brigade. Mm. So, you know, that's what we're taught. And, and, you know, one of my friends offered to pack kids lunches. 
And it didn't dawn on me that anyone could do that because my thinking was the sandwiches will get soggy if you pack them all on Monday. And she said, well, no, you can do that um, every day or the kids can make their own sandwiches, but we can put everything else together. And I was like, oh, right, you can. And then that meant that I knew that there was stuff to put in the frit to put together, like someone else took care of it. So I didn't have to worry about making sure we had enough baby carrots. Yeah. Right. So it's, I think it's just kind of thinking, I mean, I, I, I hate this term cause it's overused, but it really is thinking outside the box, right? Yeah. You don't have to limit it to dinner. Like what meals do they need the most support on? Maybe they really like dessert. Although dessert people tend to bring a lot of sweets and cookies and things. So maybe that's not yeah. a great one. Fair enough. I mean, something that we've kind of glossed over in, in this kind of 20 minutes we've been talking is is the actual process of grief. And I think it's something that everybody will go through in life, but they all go through it differently. And for some people, it, you know, it brings them down and it changes who they are. And for other people, it kind of lifts them up and changes who they are. Obviously, yes, grief, grief changes who you are yes. without question. Yes. But I think it's the direction that things tend to go in is what changes it. And it also depends what you have left afterwards you know if you've got kids or a wife or a husband or you know a group of friends or who depending on who you've lost as well you know one thing that nobody in this earth can avoid you know if if life goes correctly is you'll lose your parents and a lot of people you know that that cuts them that that finishes them and they become a completely different person you see it all the time people go oh gosh my dad died oh you know can't carry on I'm you know I've lost without my best mate type thing and all that kind of stuff but for you, you know, you lost your husband and it was like literally that that next morning or that same night, you still had three children that needed your care, time and attention, as well as you to help them through the grieving process. And I'm, I'm wondering what was, you know, that first day like, that first month, that first year, like how, how did you get through that? <laughs> well, the joke, it's not a joke, but I literally, I would focus some days on just putting one pinky toe in front of the other. It wasn't a big toe. It wasn't a whole foot because I couldn't manage a whole foot. Um, and I, I kind of want to talk a little bit, just go back, because the second point of the North Star process is feeling the feelings and mm-hmm. dealing with the stereotypes. And I think that a lot of people have this idea that um, I was talking to someone the other day and they said, wow, putting, you know, my husband has been dead for 13 years. And this person knew it. Um, he's new to me. I, you know, we don't know each other very well. And he said, wow, you know, I know you're putting together this whole program. It must be really hard for you to continually talk about it. And I realized there's a stereotype of grief out there that it's soul destroying, which it is. Yeah. And that there's no repair, which is not true. And, um, and I think it serves us to think that way because, um, one, because it means that we'll be missed for the rest of our lives, right? So, yeah. so you know, like we, you know, I don't want my child, to, my children to like, you know, be carrying on this whole heart sore because I died, but, oh, it just kind of feels a little good to know that they might, right? So it's mm. a little self, it's like, a, you know, self-fulfilling, like, you know, I am that important. Yeah. Um, but, the, but the other really big thing that people forget is life goes on. You know, now that's not to say that I don't have moments of this massive grief that feels like I'm right back where I was on day four. Um, You know, those moments still hit and they hit hard and there's no warning about them. But I think that kind of taking a look at our own stereotypes around what we think grief is and how we think we'd behave in grief and how we think we behave after cancer, whatever it is, is really important because those ideas and stereotypes that we have either allow us or don't allow us to see the reality of what grief is really like. Yeah. Um, And what is the reality of grief? It is completely 100% unpredictable and it messes with your brain. Hmm. It is one of the, it, to me, it was fascinating that something that happened, though my husband wasn't here, but it was really all in my brain. Like it wasn't affecting me physically, affected me so physically. Um, I started counting. Day one was on April 17th, you know, the day after he died. Day two was April 18th. Day three was April 19th. 
And someone pointed out, like, why are you counting? Like, that seems like you're counting into this horrible place. And really, I knew that at some point I would feel better. And I just had to count the days until I got there. I didn't know if it was going to be day 366. I highly doubted it. I didn't know if it would be day 1027. I didn't know if it would be day 4065. But I knew that I needed to keep counting to keep my sanity, to keep that hope alive. At some point, this would not hurt as much. Um, that first month was, I don't remember it very well. Um, the day after he died, I went out for a walk in my neighborhood, a neighborhood I'd been walking in for years. And I started calling people and telling them that he died. And my friend, something in my voice made my friend very concerned. And she said, where are you? And I said, oh, I'm out for a walk in my neighborhood. And she said, Kim, where are you? And I was like, I'm on. And I couldn't tell her the street name that I was on. I walked the street every single day, like for a couple years. Mm. I couldn't tell her the street name. I couldn't tell her what direction I was in. I couldn't tell her whether I was like close. There was a park near me. I couldn't tell her whether I was close to the park or whether I was far away from the park. My brain was so scrambled. Like it was yeah. like I was on a, there were days I got in a car after Art died and I thought I should not be allowed to drive right now. Like I'm yeah. on drugs. I'm yeah. on grief drugs. Mm. Um, it was, it was hellacious. I mean, it was really hard, but the silver lining of it and I mean, I'm not going to say but, and, because there's no, there's no directional change. Loss just sucks. And having people show up and just check in and leave food and sometimes say inappropriate things and say a really appropriate things and check in and take care of the kids and take care of some bills and take care of us financially for a little while. All those things allowed me to fall harder and faster, which allowed me to come up, you know, at a, at a very slow pace. There was no bouncing back, but allowed me kind of build on a really solid foundation. They provided the foundation. And that's why I do what I do is because I want people to know that whatever you do, do something. And because you're providing the foundation for them to rebuild their lives in whatever way that looks like. Maybe it's rebuilding a post-cancer life or rebuilding a life after a parent died. But every single time you say something and you do something, you are helping them build that foundation. And I stand on that foundation today. Yeah. And we've been talking a lot kind of like externally about other people helping. And realistically, as much as other people do help, you still have to kind of work on yourself and, and build yourself yeah. up. And so I'm wondering for you, what were the things that were kind of getting you through or, you know, getting you built back up to be, you know, the person you are now, you know, the person you are now who's able to help other people? Um, <laughs> you know, there's a joke in the widow community because we'll meet widows who are just widowed and they say, how do you like, how are you functioning? And we look at them and we just say, we don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it is one of those things like I said the counting really helped um, I had a deep faith in the fact that it was not always going to be this bad mm. and if I didn't have that faith I, I would not be here mm. um, it was there were some good moments, some really wonderful, sweet moments. Um, it was recognizing that both incredible sadness and gratitude and love can exist at the exact same time, um, which is, you know, we're taught you have one feeling or another feeling, but no, you can have like three or four feelings at the same time. Um, it was saying yes to help, which was not an easy thing. To do, And especially at six months or seven months out after my husband died, you know, a lot of help comes in early and then help fades out. And so I would also say to your listeners, look, if someone, if you're dealing with someone who's dealing with grief, you've got plenty of time to help because they're going to need you at three months and they're going to need you more at six months. Cause at six months is when people sort of disappear and everyone goes back to their lives and it starts to feel really isolating and really lonely. Um, I went to a support group where there were other widows who were under 50, um, who some of them had children. So that was really helpful to talk about that from that point of view. I, you know, I tried going in a support group of 70 year olds and they couldn't understand my journey. Mm. 
because they're, you know, they had been married for 25, 30, you know, they were, they were dealing with the loss on a very different level than I was dealing with. Um, it was kind of falling apart when you needed to fall apart. You know, there were days where, um, it was almost like, you know, I just couldn't get out of bed and I got out of bed because I had kids, Mm. but I would walk around the house. I would cry. I would do nothing. And then there were days I just felt like, okay, I can, you know, I'll never forget the day I celebrated that I cleaned, you know, the, the, the front, the light on the front porch had gone out and people had offered to change it. And I was like, no, I'm going to do this. And this is like probably a year after art died. It was definitely was after a year. And I was like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this myself. And I got the ladder and I undid the screws and I stuck my hand in there with all the sticky website, you know, web, 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 webs and moth carcasses and yucky stuff. (laughs) And I got in there and I changed that light bulb, you know, and I like celebrated. It was celebrating the small things. Um, I am not a vomit person. My husband and I had worked really well. I was the blood and guts. I could handle all sorts of blood and guts. I'm fine with that. I cannot do vomit. I just can't. It makes me feel like I want to vomit. Oh, All the gosh. kids knew this, yeah. you know? And so one day my, my poor son, my oldest son, he was sick and he tried to make it to the toilet. He couldn't. And he felt horrible because he knew I was, you know, Art was dead and I wasn't the vomit person. He's like, I'm so sorry. I'm like, we're going to do this. And I cleaned up the vomit and I didn't retch. And we were like, I was like Langston. He's like, yay, mom. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so it's in, you know, you get through the grief by celebrating the small, these teeny tiny little wins, right? Yeah. Of of doing things you didn't think you'd ever be able to do or you kind of gave up and didn't want to do. Um, you get through it by saying yes to help. You get through it by, I think one of the best lessons I learned with my kids is just to let them grieve. You know, it is excruciating as a mother or as a parent to not be able to fix this right? That's the one thing that we're supposed to be able to do as parents with our young children is fix stuff. And I couldn't bring their father back. And their pain rips, to this day, still rips my heart out. It just, mm. like, it just takes, like, I don't want you to rip, I don't like that cliche, but it's just like, it's like claws on my heart. It's just yeah. so painful. Um, and I learned to sit in it and sit in it with them. Um, and not to deflect, right? Not to be like, oh, you know, daddy loved you and it's okay. And daddy wouldn't want you to do this. And daddy would want you to do that. I don't do any of that. I sit in it with them, which means I sometimes cry with them. Um, and I let them feel the loss because I, you know, he was worth, he's worth being missed. Yeah. And that means sitting in it with them. Did I answer your question? I'm not really sure I did. I mean, it doesn't matter if you answered the question or not. You you said some really interesting stuff, so that that's perfectly okay. fine by me. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, going through the, the grieving process, obviously, you know, some people take time off work, other people don't. But for you, you decided to go back to work and you know go back to working in the same field that you were in, but with a different purpose. How did that kind of work out for you when you saw the same situation unfolding with your boss? Like, you were were you, were you kind of like, oh, I've seen this before let me help. Or you're like, Oh gosh, it's happening again. Type thing. What was your, you know, it it was somewhere, it was somewhere in between. I mean, I, I definitely helped and I, I didn't help as much as I could have. I was afraid to kind of step in. I was felt like, I feel like most, I felt like most managers feel Mm. like, Ooh, gosh, I really want to help, but it's kind of personal, but I, you know, I know what to do, but I don't want to tell everyone what to do. So it was, I was walking that line. Um, it going back to work was, you know, is always hard after a loss. Um, and that's another stereotype. Some people think, oh, no, you should take time off. And some people do not want that time off. They do mm. not want to sit still. They mm. cannot sit with their grief at this yeah. point in time in their journey. So if they want to come back to work a week after, then let them come back to work a week after. Because remember, it's not it's not your grief. It's their grief. Yeah. And they're doing it. The, the right way to do it is the way that they are doing it. Mm. Um, and the right way for you is something totally different. So... I think um, that was really frustrating. And actually it took a couple years for me to really meld the two because personally I had been always talking to people. I gave a lot of talks to cancer support groups. I gave a lot of talks to, um, to actually to mostly cancer support groups. I gave some talks to grief support groups, right? So I was, I was doing the talking to the people who didn't necessarily need it, but saying, hey, get your friend in here and give them the copy of this book. Mm. And then it really was um, in 2020, I was like, you know what? People need to know this. 
Like managers need to know this. This happens all the time. And I came across a statistic. 46% of those who are diagnosed with cancer are between the ages of 25 and 64. Mm. Those are prime working years. Yeah. Right? So it's not like cancer doesn't happen in the workplace. It's just that we just don't know what to do. We kind of hide it and we try to, it's personal, so we don't want to touch it. And the fact, being in HR, is that we take a look at engagement numbers and productivity numbers, right? So we're always measuring how engaged our employees are. And then on top of that, we have this huge push of well-being. After 2020, we realize our employees aren't as well off as we'd like to think, and we can no longer ignore it because it affects our revenue. So all these things sort of melded together. And it was like, managers need tools to deal with this. They need tools to deal with depression, on their team, which I'm working on right now. They need tools to deal with cancer. And because there are over 200 types of cancer and because everyone's type of cancer is different and the stages they catch it in is different, you can't put together a box that says, here's the box that you're going to need when your employee has cancer. The laws in every state in the country, in, in the United States, are different of what you can talk about. We have some federal laws that everyone needs to obey. So everything changes, right? It's, it's, it's like moving pieces together. And I love the moments when I introduce pieces and we work together as a team with a manager and, and the employee, and all of a sudden everything clicks and they have these moments where the employee feels cared for and seen. And the manager feels like they've got a handle on the situation. They feel confident right? And the team feels like, okay, we now know how to show up. And then we also know that we're going to reassess everything in six weeks or two months or whatever it is. So there's this brightness that happens on a team that's magnificent to watch because people just want the tools. They just want to know what to do. And so when they know what to do, their, their, their worry and their fear and their anxiety, you just watch it decrease. It doesn't go all the way away because you mm. still have this person on crisis in your team, but it decreases and everyone feels like, okay, okay, I can do this. And that's when you see the engagement go up, right? That's when you see the well-being scores raise a little bit because employees feel centered and cared for and they understand what to do. And they feel grateful to the company for showing them, for giving them these tools, which are honestly, goodness, you know, they're life tools. Um, they feel grateful to the company. So it really also increases that, that, that desire to work, to work for the company because they're taking care of them and themselves and their teammates. Yeah, I feel like we're making this this move from kind of big corporate, you know, professional life is professional life to this kind of more human based workplace where we understand that people are people, they go through things in life, things happen and, you know, you can't always leave that on the doorstep and, and you know, put your working hat on. And obviously there are some professions where, you you know, you might end up having to do that, you know, if you're teaching with children or right. working in a hospital and all those type of things. But, you know, the, the wider majority of us, are having these kind of experiences in our, our personal life. And then realistically, we're spending most of our day at work. And it's very strange that you can't talk about these things or you can't express these things to your colleagues when they, you know, they're having a big effect on your capacity to work, your mood, exactly. your sleep and all the things that, you know, make you able to do your job you know, the, the best way possible. Because yes. there's a reason why they employed you. They thought you were the best person for that job. And if there's anything that's stopping you from doing that, surely there should be, you know, a, a, a kind of easier way for you to say that without feeling guilty and the manager should feel, you know, happy that you told them so that they can, you know, be receptive. Exactly. And I think the thing that people forget, and I, I hear this a lot with managers, look, most people want to work. They want to do a good job. Maybe the job they're doing for you isn't the right place for them, but everyone feels a sense of satisfaction when they work, when they've gotten something done, when they've helped, you know, be a part of something. Mm. And, um, and I think that, you know, the employee, what managers forget is to look at it from the employee's point of view. They're terrified. They're terrified they're going to lose their job. They're terrified that they're going to do a bad, most employees are terrified they're going to do a bad job. Or some employees, if, if it's not a good match, are like, woo, it's kind of like paid vacation 
vacation. I'm out, right? Mm. Yeah. And so, and so, but you know, most most people want to do a good job, and I think um, you know, I always like in what's happened in corporations is what's happened with schools in the U.S. at least, right? So schools used to be schools. Kids showed up, you taught them, they went home. Mm-hmm. Then we needed to start having aftercare. So kids showed up, you taught them, and then they went and played for a while. Then the parents picked up, and then we started having morning care. So kids would show up really early on the school, you know, and then all of a sudden we needed washing machines because some kids home life, they weren't getting their clothes washed. And sometimes we need, we need bathrooms where they can, you know, change their clothes and they can take showers and get clean. We need tutors now, special tutors who can sit with children and help them learn what they're missing. So all these things are coming in to support kids in schools because the society or the parents aren't able to do it the best way that they, the way they used to be able to do it. And the same thing is happening in corporations. We can no longer, like, you know, Black Lives Matter is a great example of that, right? In we used to think, okay, we're going to bring ourselves to work. We're going to work. We're going to go home. But what we, what happens at work goes home with us and what, mm-hmm. and home comes to work with us mm-hmm. and everyone's known it. Everyone's felt it, but this, this happening that occurred and we were all, we all happened to be at home. So it was a, vi- we were all watching. And so all of a sudden corporations were like, oh, right. We need to kind of start paying attention to this. And some corporations decided to pay attention to it and others decided not to pay attention to it. And, you know, how that plays out in companies in the next 20 years, I think is going to be really interesting because we're no longer about just, you, you have to deal with mental health. You mm-hmm. cannot ignore mental health anymore. It's just impossible. Um, otherwise, you end up going to a lot of funerals because people have committed suicide, right? So, and then you end, end up with employees who feel guilty because they wonder, was there something I could have done and said? Then the employees kind of feel like, why didn't the company do something? I told them that this person was happening to them and the company did nothing. And now all of a sudden, all that anger and rage that the employee feels is now going towards the company. And guess what? They're not doing their best work for you. They're just hanging out and doing what they can because they need the paycheck. So- yeah. I know those kind of feel like all these kind of different webs, but corporations are now needing to take care of their employees in a deeper, more profound way. And I believe that there is an absolute, that, that they can absolutely do that and also be productive at the same time. And the vehicle that they should use to help, well, the vehicle that everybody should use to help each other is through a hundred acts of love. Now, well, of course, I, I think that. Yeah, uh, well, listen, yeah, the people that have listened this far in, they, they're, they're already sold on you, Kim. So anything we say now, you know, they're going to go do. But what is your favorite act? Because 100 acts is a, is a lot of different acts. So I'm wondering, what is your favorite act of love that, that you do or you would do for somebody who is going through a tough time? I have three favorite ones, um, and they were all done for me. The first one was putting a cooler by the front door. And this actually didn't happen until my husband got cancer the second time. And when you put a cooler by the front door, it means that I don't have to be there to answer the door. I can be home and I don't have to answer it because it takes energy to greet people when you're dealing with cancer or when you're dealing with grief. Mm. And some days I wanted to talk to people, but there are many days I did not. And so that cooler was key. My favorite, 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 favorite tip in the whole wide world is next time you're at the grocery store, call up the person and say, what five things are you almost out of? I'll pick them up and drop them off. Right? So that tip is one, we're always almost out of something in our house. Right? So there's, there's like no denying, oh no, I'm fine. Like they have to kind of, and then what you do is you say, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, I'll drop it off. So that means there's no conversation. You don't have to engage me. You don't have to worry about my going, oh, how are you? Like none of that. Like I'm going to get this stuff. I'm going to drop it off on my way home, right? And it's so, it's such an easy tip that it's hard to say no to because it's immediate and it's easy, right? So it's not like the long-term, like I'll go grocery shopping for you every week. There's not a lot of guilt involved in it either, right? I can can get you to buy me things that, five things that'll cost 15 bucks, Mm-hmm. And I can say, I'll pay you back. But if it's 15 bucks, I'm like, I got it. You know, 15 US dollars, I got it. So it's really, it's a very helpful thing to do. And then the last thing, I tell the story of my neighbor, Nate. And after Art died, my neighbor, Nate, wandered up one day and he said, hey, Kim, when was the last time the oil was changed in your car? And I couldn't tell him. I couldn't tell him if the light was on. I couldn't tell him. 
And he said, I'll tell you what, I'm going to be home all day tomorrow, leave the keys in the mailbox, I'll come by, I'll pick up the car, and I'll do it for you. And I said, okay. And so I did that. And he came by, picked up the car, brought it back. And then later on that day, I went out with the kids. And I look at the car. And I'm like, something's kind of different about it. And I get in the car and I start to cry. Because not only had he changed the oil of the car, he had had it cleaned inside and out. Remember, I have three kids. And he had filled it with gas. And he had done, it took him an all of an hour to do. And what he did in that simple act of love was relieve the pressure that I didn't even realize that I had, right? A car is so vital in so many different ways. And I, I, I can't tell you how many times I almost ran out of gas in the first six months Art died because I just didn't have the wherewithal to even look at the gauge to see whether or not we were almost on empty. Yeah. And then to have the energy to go to the gas station to fill it up with gas was just a whole different ball game. And so, you know, car help is something that we don't often think about, but holy cow, is that so helpful. So those are my three, right? Cooler by the front door, five things you're almost out of, and help with a car because it's just so powerful. And it's usually in those things, usually people won't say no. You might have to push a little bit with the car. You might be like, I'm taking your car to get gas. No, I'm coming today to take your car to get gas. Um, but, you know, just keep pushing. Keep pushing. Keep Be as specific as you can and offer more than once. Where can the people find you online? Absolutely. So I know I mentioned it earlier. They can go to 100actsoflove.com. And if you go there and then you add backslash what not to say, no spaces, no capitals, and nothing, um, you'll be able to download for free five or five things never to say to anybody with cancer and what to say instead. And I also teach you why they're not helpful. So it's not like don't do this, but do this. It's like, here's why, because you'll start to see a theme in why these phrases aren't helpful. Um, they can also find me on Instagram at 100 Acts of Love and on LinkedIn as well at Kim Hamer. I think it's Kim T. Hamer on LinkedIn. Um, and I do LinkedIn Lives every Thursday. So if there's something that you, if you have a question, it doesn't have to be about business. If you have a question that you want answered, shoot me a, a private message and I will answer your question during the LinkedIn Live. And if you don't want me to call out your name, I will not call out your name. But I just want people to feel free and able to ask questions because the more you ask, the more you learn, the more you learn, the better you are able to support your person with cancer or with dealing with whatever loss. And lastly, what I really want people to know is how important they are. I think we, when we get into the comparison game, when we look outside or when we think about, we're really good at pointing out all of the bad things that we've done, but we're not really good at really under and taking credit for the th good things that we've done. And you matter to your friend. Your friend has you in their lives for a reason. Your teammates have you in your lives for reasons. You know, you're working because you matter. And I want people to take ownership of that and to show up for the person who is really hurting right now because what you do does make a difference and you can help them even in a small tiny gesture you can help them weather what they're going through you can make it a little bit easier by just showing up so please remember you really do matter thank you for listening to people explained new episodes come out every monday we would appreciate it if you gave us a review on apple podcasts and shared this episode with a friend